You know, it's not that low-income families created slums. It's like slums were created because they were profitable. Money made slums because slums made money. Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. And now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Brave New Films, The David Pakman Show, The Laura Flanders Show, Counterspin, Infinite Earth Radio, and We the Podcast with Representative Keith Ellison. Tarps and other temporary shelters will soon be illegal in the city of Manteca. We're being hemmed down and we got nowhere to go anymore. All it's going to do is shuffle it somewhere else. They're, they're not going nowhere. It is now illegal to sit or lie on the sidewalks in a number of areas across Oahu. You'd be surprised he's homeless. I mean, I got a family, he's autistic, and I don't want him out here. Got homeless twice in one year. Just uh, losing our jobs and not being able to pay our bills. In Fort Lauderdale, 90-year-old man was arrested for feeding the homeless. A new ordinance that virtually outlaws groups from sharing food with the hungry. I'm a vet. I serve this country well, but unfortunately, they're kicking us around like cats and dogs. I don't deserve that. Nobody deserves that. We decided to adopt a Housing First model Instead of asking people to change their lives before we gave them housing, we chose to give them housing along with the supportive services and then allow them to change their lives if they wanted to. Having a house is the stable base for everything. If you don't have a stable place to live, that's gonna be the biggest crisis on your mind every day. Whereas when you're in your own home, that whole level of stress is taken away. And now you can focus on everything else that you need to focus on in your life. Getting my housing here literally saved my life. If I was still the homeless guy, I would have continued on drank myself to death at this point. But it works because we reduced our chronic homeless count by 72%. About $20,000 per person per year on the street. We can house them for about $7,800 per person per year for case management and rental assistance. It is most cost-effective. We can serve more people with the same amount of dollars than if we didn't do this program. But it's also the right thing to do. It just makes sense. Just because I don't have a home to go to does not make me a criminal. We've talked off and on about the idea that sometimes when you give away so-called free stuff, as the right likes to talk about it, you actually can end up saving money. And we have another instance of this from Utah. In 2005, Utah had almost 2,000 of what they call chronically homeless individuals. 
And by last year, that number had dropped 72 percent to only 539 people. How did this happen? Well, uh, Gordon Walker explained this. Gordon Walker is the director of the State Housing and Community Development Division. And he said that the state is approaching a functional zero level of chronic homelessness. It's super simple. Utah gave chronically homeless people brand new houses, period. First, they had to identify, okay, who is chronically homeless? And they said, well, the way we will determine if someone is chronically homeless is they have a disabling condition and have been homeless for longer than a year, or they have been homeless four different times in the last three years. And they instituted this program called Housing First. Now, before the program started, Utah was spending $20,000 on each homeless person per year. And the state started setting up each chronically homeless person with his or her own house. Then once they had them in stable housing, they were provided counseling. In 2004, they did a trial run, okay? The state housed 17 people through Salt Lake City. They checked back a year later, 14 of those 17 were still in their homes and three had passed away. Very, very high success rate. Years later, now we have even more results. Walker says that the state saves about $8,000 per homeless person in annual expenses. Instead of $20,000 per person, they are now spending $12,000 per person, taking into account the cost of giving someone housing. Again, this is proven. The most fiscally conservative program is the so-called liberal one. Giving the homeless homes seems absurd, right? It's the the height of government waste. Hey, they haven't earned those homes. Why are taxpayers paying for those homes? Why are you getting something for nothing? Who cares about it? For Put aside the, the morals of it, of people should pull themselves up by the bootstraps. If you want to do what is fiscally conservative, we have yet another example. We had one from Colorado, Lewis. Now we have one from Utah. This saves money. Uh, yeah, conservative ideology here kind of makes it seem like these people should be punished instead of helped. Because of course. it's more about the morals than about what is fiscally conservative, even though they preach fiscal conservatism. They deserve uh, to be homeless. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, and there's also the inability to look at things in the in the long term, the bigger picture, um, because it's all about instant gratification or instant punishment. You know, that's what conservatives do. This is actually even more evidence for me that we should really consider a basic income. And we're going to talk about talk about this hopefully soon with a basic income expert. And we've talked about it in the past. When you provide a basic income as a matter of, of fact, right, you can eliminate so many social programs, each of which has significant administration costs. If you say, OK, we've got food stamps over here and that's about 200 bucks a month in benefits and it costs who knows how many millions or tens of millions. I don't even know how much just in, in administering that and who qualifies for the food stamps, who doesn't qualify for the food stamps. Uh, you look at other programs, you look at pick whatever program Social you want, Security. Social Security, et cetera, et cetera. If you have a basic income and you can forget about means testing, you can forget about all of the other uh, 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 administrative and bureaucratic layers that we have, you actually will save significantly. And this has been shown time after time in small experiments. And I remain convinced, Lewis, that we should, especially as automation and technological unemployment will be more and more of an issue, as we discussed earlier this week, we really need to seriously think about a basic income. Yes. Well, I think that is going to be the hardest possible thing to to achieve, probably mm. even harder than a single payer healthcare system, because now you're talking about, I mean, 
convincing conservatives with this. Sure. Uh, you're convincing them to give everybody money all the time. And, you know, that's all they hear. You can, you can make every argument, but all they're going to hear is free money for everybody. Right. Uh, good luck with that. The opposite of what the conservatives say on many of these fiscal issues is true. Giving away free stuff is really expensive. Now, actually giving away free stuff sometimes can be really inexpensive. Pulling people off, kicking people off of social programs is how we save. No, actually, that can be really, really expensive. And that's what we're increasingly learning from these individual studies and, and experiments that are being done in different places. focus of ours is also how do we combine community development with job training pathways so that we as members of PUSH can actually see tangibly people being put back to work through community-based efforts. And so this video focuses in part on those training pathways and the sectors like weatherization, renewable energy, and green mm. infrastructure that we've built. Let's take a look. third poorest city in the country. It's very tough to get a job. I'm just to survive. You really can't at minimum wage. I have a $422 gas bill. We've got such a serious problem with housing in, in Buffalo. It's a crisis. We need jobs in this area. For us, going green isn't just a lifestyle, it's about survival. The Green Development Zone, um, it's a geographic space uh, where we're trying to concentrate uh, bricks and mortar development, uh, specifically uh, green affordable housing development. We want to create jobs that are about dealing with the big ticket problems in this neighborhood, energy efficiency, the indoor and outdoor environmental hazards, access to healthy food and reusing the vacant spaces that are in their neighborhoods. The Green Development Zone is uh, I think a model for a new uh, form of uh, uh, you know, economic development where local communities control the resources that come into the neighborhood. PUSH you know, has worked to hold corporations accountable to local constituencies. We work together and we put people first. The National Fuel Campaign is uh, one of the campaigns that PUSH leaders and members run. Essentially, it is the idea that there's a crisis in our neighborhoods People have to make tough choices in order to pay their gas bills. Um, and we have a solution to that problem, which is insulation. If we insulate the homes, bills go down. We'll also be creating green jobs. What I like about it is every day is something else. You know, we're working on the doors one day, the floors, the ceiling, or whatever it could be. Or the road I was headed, I was I, I, I supposed to be in jail right now. I'm not going to lie. I know I'm something now. And it's like, wow, it's just amazing. Just me knowing that. You get to grow up and you get to become somebody that to look up to. Rodney is like, was a youth who grew up in this neighborhood and is now a man who works in this neighborhood, transforming the face of this neighborhood brick by brick. 
It's really about what people know they need, where they live. They need access to healthy food. They need access to, to, to clear space for them to be neighbors, right? Social spaces, recreation spaces. Right across the street is the Massachusetts Avenue Project's urban farm. We have community gardens are, are scattered around some of the vacant lots that we've had. In the most mornings, I'm here by 6.30. <laughs> I'm a mom of four. I work full time. It really gives me some peace. It provides me with that outlet to start my day and also provide me with fruits and vegetables. Greens, tomatoes, peppers, potatoes, cabbage. Connecting people to the Green Development Zone is really simple, right? It's about just drawing simple connections, right? The, the park that they live next to, the community center that they bring their kids to after school, their peak gas bills in their heating season, what were they like? Are they mad about that? Are they, do they find, do they think that's okay? Do they think that's fair? Do they think that's right? We're mobilizing a bunch of people who want to do something about not just the state of their own housing, but the state of this neighborhood. We need you to be visible, present, and accounted for. Great video, amazing stories. What do you want to add, John, to the picture that we get of what people's options are in Buffalo these days and why these kinds of avenues to employment are so important? I mean, they're very important because people don't have a lot of options. There isn't a lot of employment. Um, you know, I personally worked in, in collections for 10 years and despite trying to do pretty much anything but um, always went back to that. You know, we have restaurants, we have a few other things, but really there's just not enough jobs. And right now, the argument now is being made to basically take all of our tax dollars and say, let's let's create jobs mm -hmm. by subsidizing large corporations. And what you're seeing is options for people that don't live in Buffalo. You're seeing a, a mass gentrification where um, most of the jobs that are being brought to Buffalo, even if they are being brought there, are jobs that, you know, require uh, levels of education levels of privilege that that the folks in Buffalo are just not able to access and so it's important that the community development also employ people that mm -hmm. it, it can change the community by the community coming together but it can also create sustainable employment for people in the community and give them experiences that can send them on to work on some of these other projects and give them the tools and the skills to be employed from that point on so to really make it sure that it's changing humans not just the structure so how, how did you get started i mean you're starting with people that don't have a lot of resources how do you start an organization like that? yeah i mean so one piece one recognition is that there are assets that if people community gain control over the assets, the resources, whether it's land or housing, um, that something can be built from those assets, even if they were sort of afterthoughts and not really considered assets. So we organized through direct action. One of our early campaigns was literally putting the governor's face on 400 vacant buildings across the city that the state had taken control of in sort of a fraudulent Wall Street deal and had left for dead. And we said, well, these are in our neighborhoods. Uh, we want to take control of some of these houses and we want some investment to make up for the disinvestment that you caused. And that gave us a platform and a set of programs that we built on from, from that point on. Not only that, generated some money, as I remember. Gen generated some revenue and, and allowed us to, to really reinvest in other projects and, and gain development capacity. Because you were able to prove that he wasn't fulfilling the pledges he'd made and the grounds on which he had That's appropriated right. And, and I mean, in that case, it was just the opposite. These houses were getting set on fire. They were really, uh, really uh, 
diminishing the quality of life in neighborhoods across the city. And I would say one example of building on that success is that now we've created other social enterprises like uh, a, a company that does green infrastructure, which is rain gardens, bioswales, uh, projects that help us manage our water mm-hmm. rather than having sewage go into our Great Lakes. They help us clean our, our Great Lakes. And that's a sector that we at a community level could really control. And how does your fight for, I mean, you have it on your shirt, mm-hmm. sustainable housing how is that fight different from the fight that we see in so many cities around affordable housing? Is that a distinction that that you make? Affordable kind of just references like the race, the relationship between your income and what you're charged in rent. And sustainable adds a layer of using green energy, um, of you know using weatherization, um, solar and geothermal energy to make living in the home more affordable by lowering your bills. So it's not enough to say your rent's going to be lower than normal, but we want to make sure you're paying as little as possible for your electric and your heat. Um, and also more sustainable for you as a human being, but also for the environment and, you know, not using the fossil fuels, natural gases, and the things that are getting extracted and, and creating climate change. So I think there's, you know, a, the interplay between the two that make this a more sustainable world for everybody. You want to add anything to that? Yeah, just pick up on a, what John said around the just transition frame. That's one way of thinking about the work we do and, and really that the role that banks play in extracting wealth from our community, the role that big corporations have played in removing work from our community is in some ways very similar to the extraction that occurs in our environment. Um, you know, the ga- natural gas extraction, the fracking uh, some of the gas that we use in Buffalo is fracked gas. And so putting all those pieces together and building an analysis around where we need to go, more localized job creation, uh, sectors that are good for the earth, not bad for the earth, and really trying to be first into some of those sectors so that there's community direction and community leadership rather than just large corporate uh, Project. We were, we did a special on what happened in Baltimore and the roots of the uprising there last year after the police killing. And what was so striking to me was the, the people that said, we want change. We just want to be part of that change. Mm-hmm. And who got the message very clearly, constantly, that the change that was happening was not for them. Mm-hmm. The, the, the supermarket that opened, 7-Eleven didn't take food stamps, didn't take SNAP. That you can... You have figured out how to have an input in change. I think it's something other people would like to emulate. Is this unique to, to Buffalo? How did you? What would be your advice to people elsewhere? I'll just say yeah. So I think you 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 know hit it on the head that it's really about what does development mean? Mm-hmm. Does development just mean a an external party comes up with a project and all of a sudden it's in your neighborhood, or is there a community process around it? And there's some great examples of others who are doing this. The the city of Boston and some of the groups, Dudley Street Dudley Neighborhood, Street Initiative, Neighborhood Initiative, Lawrence Community Works uh, in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, they kind of pioneered the idea of community control of land and of housing. And you can see long term that that has been really essential to preserving those particular parts of that region as affordable, diverse uh, How does that work? I mean, you have an urban land trust as, as a part of your project. John, you want to talk to that? I mean, I think how it works is, is if you have, we have a community development committee. We have people in the neighborhood that are working towards getting everybody together on the same page as to what they want the, the vision, uh, for the neighborhood to, to be. And I think that, um, the beauty of it is being able to have that, that influence and being able to see that vision of people who, like, like you said in Baltimore, are never really asked, what do you want your neighborhood to look like? And are, 
sometimes deeply convinced that they're never going to have that opportunity. Um, and then when you add the capacity of, you know, being able to have access to people in, in urban planning and land banking and, um, you know, land use law and people who know how to, how to logistically create that vision. I think that's, you know, that's the beauty of the combination that, um, you know, makes it kind of unique. Although other folks have done it around the country is that you may have people who say, you know, I want, I want my neighborhood to look different. Um, but to have the infrastructure there that says that that, that state I want this to be here can be explained. Well, this is what you need to do to mm-hmm. get that. This is the people that we need to move. Um, this is the paperwork that needs to be filed. And, um, you know, the entire process is is empowering the people. And we have a lot of folks now that, you know, really, you know, I think one of the unique things in coming from working with other organizations is that when people see physical things created, it, it creates a belief um, that really washes away all of the i wouldn't say even apathy but all of the conditioning that says you're not going to be part of this change mm. so i think the, the beauty comes from the the combination of the infrastructure and the organizing all these rows of homes did they have to build them right here don't mind me i'm just trying to get you to see It was lost on few that Flint, Michigan is a predominantly African-American and predominantly poor community. Some say that had nothing to do with the series of decisions that led to the poisoning with lead of Flint's water. But the work of our next guest explores the undeniable reality that across the country, there are environmental problems that disproportionately affect communities of color. Talia Buford is a reporter on the environment and labor team at the Center for Public Integrity. They are producing a series called Environmental Justice Denied. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Talia Buford. Thank you. Well, when news came out about the crisis of lead in the water in Flint, maybe not the first question, but the third or fourth question for many people was, where was the EPA? You know, where was the public advocate, if you will, uh, in terms of preventing the situation or responding to it? What in theory, would be the role of the EPA? Would they even have a role in such a situation as what we saw in Flint? I think that what we see in Flint is a failure on a number of different levels, failure from the city level to the state level to the federal level. EPA has a role, of course, as an overseer of the Michigan Environmental Agency. The Michigan Department should be probably the one that has a bigger responsibility than the federal agency since they are working in conjunction with the state. But I think that everyone here had something that they did where they fell off the job. Our series specifically looked at the EPA Office of Civil Rights, and that's a very specific program within the agency that looks at cases of environmental discrimination under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. They really are called into action when a complaint is filed to them. 
So for them, they almost have to wait. Uh, they don't have to. Well, they, they can wait until right. someone that raises their hand and says, hey, there's a problem here. And you should look into this. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't have been someone else at either EPA or at the Michigan Environmental Agency saying, hey, these people are raising concerns. We should at the very minimum look into them. A headline of a piece that you co-wrote recently was Environmental Racism Persists and the EPA is One Reason Why. Well, those are strong words. You've talked about the Office of Civil Rights. What did your investigation turn up about the actual track record of that office? In our investigation, we looked at more than 15 years of complaints that citizens had filed to the EPA Office of Civil Rights. These are minority communities, often low income, but not always, who are saying we live next to a sewage plant that makes it horrible for us to sit outside on our porches, or there are pesticides being sprayed on the fields next to our schools. So what we found is that over the 22-year history of the office, the agency only had about 300 complaints, and they've never made a formal finding of a Title VI violation. They've made one preliminary finding and, and there have been you know, some investigations, but they've never come out and said, Texas or Indiana or you know, whatever state, you are violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And that struck us as something, uh, especially over decades-long history, that you can't find one bad actor when we know that there are so many of these cases. We hear about them all the time. To hear that there's been no wrongdoing, it, it struck us as kind of odd. So in our investigation, what we also found is that only 12 of those cases that the EPA has found, they've closed with any actual official action. That means they've either negotiated or had some sort of informal settlement. The rest of them were all resolved among the complainants or, or the agencies or, or dismissed. And then even beyond that, there are several cases, almost 20, that have been just waiting in limbo, waiting for EPA to act in some way. In some cases, they've been waiting more than a decade. On one level, it's a story of red tape, you know, blah. Blah, blah. But on the other hand, it really is having real world effects on people. Sure, definitely. And I think that part of the problem becomes that it's very hard sometimes to prove a direct link between the cancer you get five years from now and the plant you lived next to when you were a kid or the facility that you worked at when you were just out of high school. That's one of the challenges of the environmental justice movement, having that scientific base and being able to prove that direct link between some of those health effects and the environmental factors that are surrounding really all of us. Yeah, or being being able to change the conversation towards one of a precautionary principle. You know, maybe you shouldn't mm -hmm. have to wait until 20 years later and people have carcinomas, you know, to, to maybe we should kind of get out in, in front of it. And it's interesting because the EPA, it's not that they don't talk the talk. They do talk about, as you found, environmental racism, and that kind of is out of keeping with their actual inaction on the issue. Well, I think that to be fair to EPA, they have made some changes in response to our series and then also just kind of on their own mm -hmm. examination. The director there, Velveeta Golightly-Howell, the director of the Office of Civil Rights, she's released a strategic plan that says, hey, we have this new case management system to track complaints and investigations, and here's how we're going to investigate claims, and here's a timeline we have for stepping up proactive reviews. On that same token, though, not all of the changes that they're proposing are 
welcome. Um, advocates are really worried about a rule that EPA is proposing, or may propose rather, that would eliminate a lot of the deadlines for responding to cases. And obviously, one of the problems that we have here is that cases are sometimes stuck in limbo for a very long time. And a lot of the advocates are concerned that if you remove the one statutory like stick that right. citizens have to move the EPA into action, that it won't necessarily mean that the agency will be more nimble or more responsive, but that it just will cause more delay. From our interviews with people who are in the EPA or recently left, the people who work there, I don't think any of us doubted their actual sincerity mm-hmm. or their commitment. I think that it's really a matter of the structure that they have to work within, just being in the agency and in this political climate. I mean, EPA isn't a necessarily popular right. agency within the administration. And I doubt that the Office of Civil Rights within the EPA is the most popular uh, entity in the government or the best resourced or supported. One thing the EPA has said is that they want to make sure that environmental justice is not just relegated to the Office of Civil Rights or the Office of Environmental Justice, and that it really should be an agency-wide priority. And I think that that's a valid point. You really need buy-in from all levels of the administration, of state regulators, of everyone from top to bottom to really make the system work. Your thoughts on journalistic coverage of this? I was thinking about it kind of in the context of Flint, and I think that a lot of the local news media is paying attention, and there's been some amazing reporting and watchdogging that's been coming out of the Detroit Free Press and the Flint Journal, but a lot of this really comes down to people not being listened to, either by state officials and, and in some case by the national media. There's so much information that's just out there mm-hmm. if you look for it. Our series was built on data that we pulled from the EPA that was publicly available. We, we were able to get it through a FOIA request. We actually created a database and made it public on our website so that people can tell their own stories using our data as well. So I think that these stories like Flint or other stories out of the Office of Civil Rights even can be a jumping off point for us to just start asking more about our communities and asking more about the world that we live in and looking for the data to back those questions up. We've been speaking with Talia Buford. You can find her work and that of the whole Environmental Justice Denied series at the Center for Public Integrity's website, which is publicintegrity.org. Talia Buford, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Just know you're not alone Because I'm going to make this place your Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress that is sold directly to customers, getting rid of all the extra expense of showroom markups in order to pass those savings on to you. An in-house team of their engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper, which combines springy latex and supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine even named it one of the best inventions of 2015, and even though the Casper is obsessively engineered and made right here in the U.S., they're offering it at a shockingly fair price, a lot less than a showroom mattress, which can often cost well over $1,500. Casper mattresses start at just $500 for a twin size and only go up to $950 for a king. Plus, they offer free shipping to the U.S. and Canada right to your door in an impossibly small box. And your purchase is risk-free because you get to try it at home for up to 100 days with the option of a painless return for a complete refund. 
As a special offer, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website, but again, it's casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. Another piece and, and something that Bernice is familiar with is our, our attempts to understand the long-term environmental justice history of the city, how decisions are made, who makes them, who's included in them, what the consequences are for the people who live in the city, and recognizing that those that participation in the input into what are the key issues, the decision-making, and the consequences are not evenly distributed among different types of people in the city. So, Morgan, we'd like to ask a little bit more on that. There's so much that we could talk to you about. My goodness, 400 years of research, right? Looking at a particular geographic location over the span of 400 years is nothing short of spectacular. But I I first heard you talk about this work in, I think, 2009 at the Maryland Water Monitors Conference. And I'd like you to explore economic and social inequality and diminished access to nature. Well, I think, and I guess it goes back to this residential object of, of study that we have for us is, is to really understand the history of decision making that, that's gone on in the city. And a fundamental question in environmental justice research is which comes first? Do you have the people there first or do you have, for instance, the polluting industries and the people might move there because the cost of housing may be lower because it's, it's undesirable? One of the things that we set out to do was to look at the long-term history of zoning variances, which is a key facet to a lot of environmental justice research. And we put together the the long-term census history of the city, so we knew where people lived. And then we pulled all the zoning variances that had ever been applied for for the city of Baltimore. We coded them as to whether or not they were environmentally related or not. And then we looked at whether or not they were approved or not approved. And then we looked at the case history for whether they were approved or not approved. And what you see over the long term, going back to the early 1930s, is that there had been a racial bias in whether or not those zoning variances were approved or disapproved. And what you saw was that in low-income neighborhoods, but particularly in African-American neighborhoods, that those zoning variances were approved. When you looked at the same kind of zoning variances applied for in white neighborhoods in Baltimore, you saw that they were disapproved. Now, that zoning variance bias persisted up until about the 1970s when the city reformed its zoning variance process and, and who was in charge of making those decisions. It may be a coincidence or not, but that's about the time that the city turns to predominantly African American and you see some shifts in power. When you look at the case law for why they were approved or not approved, one of the things that you see as a hidden hand behind this is something called redlining, which is uh, a form of where investments are made or are not made uh, through mortgages and, and various types of loans. Now, in the earlier housing crisis that occurred in the 1930s. Ours is not the most recent. Ours is the most recent. You had the major one in the 1930s. 
the federal government set out with something called the Homeowners Loan Corporation to decide where mortgages should be saved, where homes should be saved, and where mortgages should not be saved. Those neighborhoods that were designated as undesirable places for resuscitating loans were redlined. They were maps where people's neighborhoods were literally redlined and said, this is not a good investment. In that process, they looked at a variety of different things that could cause a neighborhood to be redlined. Some of it was related to whether or not it was close to a park, whether or not it was related to or close to industry, the quality of the housing stock, the, the types of employment, but it also accounted for uh, whether or not you had, in their terms, a Negro population or you had Irish or Italian immigrants who lived in those neighborhoods. And in Baltimore, you see that uh, a number of neighborhoods were redlined because they were African-American. And they could not get investments for their homes, mortgages for their homes to make any kind of improvement. And so those neighborhoods tend to deteriorate. As they deteriorated, it caused those neighborhoods to be less desirable. And when the zoning board would look at, well, where should we allow zoning variances to occur? Part of the case law indicated they said, well, these neighborhoods have already deteriorated. So it's quite reasonable to put those negative investments, those polluting industries in those neighborhoods because they've already been, they've already declined. And part of their rationale for why to disallow them in other neighborhoods was because, well, they're pretty nice. There was no notion of an equal burden of polluting industries in the city and in the long-term segregation that had existed in the city. And then the redlining set the stage for those disamenities to go into Baltimore. Some of our research looks at not only the, the location of these disamenities, but the history of amenities as to where you had parks and, and you see a, a racial history to where uh, land was purchased and parks were established in the city. So those are two cases of a pattern that we observe. But we're also interested in the procedure. How did these come, things come to be? I just gave you an outline of how it came to be for those disamenities. But then we look at the procedures for where did amenities get allocated. We find, as I mentioned with the parks, that people, the, the, the fact that African-American neighborhoods needed parks were not a compelling reason for where land was acquired or parks were built. And more currently, we see when we look at where do things such as tree giveaways, where are they most effective, um, we, we find that they those tree giveaways are, uh, we have a major rainstorm here. The, the sound that you hear is the raining. Um, we find that they those tree giveaways are uh, more more currently we we see the the process now of trying to promote environmental programs such as tree planting in that they are least successful often in African American communities and we need to look at why is that less successful in those communities. This is part of the procedural understanding: Are we not addressing their issues? Is uh, the messengers that we're using the, the wrong kind of people? What I mean here is rather than, say, citywide environmental NGOs coming and reaching out into these communities, should we be working through different power structures and information structures that the city ha 
that, that exist in these neighborhoods, such as through churches and through mosques. We also see the need to work in these areas because of that long-term history of redlining that I mentioned, where, and it's amazing to see, and it's only because we have a long-term perspective, that if you look at where we had the redlining map of 1937 and where I have vacant, where we have vacant lots and where we have the lowest amounts of canopy cover, those are in those same neighborhoods from 1937. So that long-term history of segregation is still present in what we see in terms of the environment, and it also points to, as we initiate programs, that maybe we need to change the way that we do things in reaching out and trying to work with with folks that have been underserved for so long. So, Morgan, this is really one of the most fascinating areas of research that social science that I've heard anybody talk about in a long time. And a lot of social scientists who work in the environmental justice space really try to make these connections. But you have this longitudinal study that really, you know, shows historically how this has come about. So you've you've identified the impact that residential segregation has had going forward. Can you talk about the access to natural choices and health disparities and other quality of life indicators? How does that come up and what does that say about current conditions in Baltimore today? I think that these, this, this lack of connection to the environment plays out in, in, in two different ways. One of which is that many of these disadvantaged neighborhoods where you have a low, a, a small amount or low, poor access to, to nature has created a situation where we have failed real estate markets where the private sector really isn't coming in and, and, and looking to make investments in neighborhoods, make those neighborhoods nicer and to contribute to the overall housing stock. And so we need to do three things. We, we need to look at how we can improve the environmental quality of these neighborhoods. We need to remove the housing stock that no longer is habitable. And we need to do it in a way where we don't have greenwashing and people are displaced because of the improvements to the neighborhoods. So that's one way. The second thing that we need to start to address in working in some of these dispossessed neighborhoods is that the people that we work with have, have because they've not had a long-term history or connection with various green environmental things, to the extent that they've had any connection, it's been through the Discovery Channel. So how do we start to have a conversation about what could what's possible in their neighborhood and what do they want? And that's got to be done in a way that's inclusive, where they get to participate in deciding what they want, that they, it's inclusive in getting to decide how they want to see it happen. And it's inclusive in terms of how it's implemented in a way so that they get to stay there. So, Morgan, what have been the most startling or unexpected findings that have emerged from the Baltimore Ecosystem Study thus far? Well, to me, it's the long-term history of the city and going back to its, its segregationist history in the late 1910s of trying to make, to formalize segregation and to make it something that was completely legal. And when that went to the Supreme Court and it didn't work, how there were attempts to make it informal and, uh, and informal meant putting it on deeds and creating sort of agreements among neighbors in a, 
in a, in a neighborhood that they would not sell to certain types of people. And if they did, someone did sell to, to an African American, people in the, in the neighborhood would burn that house down. Wow. It's, it's startling to me that it was so purposeful. And it's really astounding to me that it's left such a long-term imprint upon the city. And as we look to try to revitalize neighborhoods and, and raise up the whole city, what we're dealing with that, that history that is social and economic and, and environmental. So I think it's helpful for our listeners to know who are not from the Mid-Atlantic region or not from Maryland or Baltimore, that Baltimore was the first city in the United States to use race as a, a driving factor in local land use and zoning. And this whole pattern of residential segregation really took off from the process Baltimore City put in place in 1917. So it's, it's really interesting, Morgan, to hear you say it's still with us, right? And it's still framing and shaping life outcomes. Mike? Yes, yeah, so Morgan, I'd like to follow up on your last comment and just ask you a question a little off, off of our, our plan here. But so you, you talk about that this systematic, continuous disempowerment of, uh, of African-Americans, of black folks, people of color. And it's surprising. It's surprising to white folks um, like myself and you how much and how persistent this has been throughout history. And, but, it, but it's not shocking to, to folks of color, to black people. Why is that? And how do we overcome that? How do we, how do we get folks who are predisposed to be helpful, but who really just don't understand the history of how we got to where we got to? How, how, how do we overcome that? Well, I think that we need to disabuse folks of the notion that everyone has choice, that we can all live where we want to live, that we all have been able to live where we want to live. And perhaps as a means of enfranchisement is to recognize that that segregation was perpetuated upon Jews as well, that it, it said that on deeds that you couldn't sell to, to a black or a Jew. And Catholics. And well, and I was going to get on to the Catholics too. So all those Irish and Italians were Catholic. And, and so it was this, some people weren't able to live where they wanted to and other people enjoyed privilege and to help people understand that it hasn't been always fair and it's still not fair. And even as we work to make it more and more fair, we, we have the footprint of history upon us and it, it affects not only what we have, the patterns of decline of poor environments and economic situations and, and of housing, but also affects, you know, the way that we, we can move forward and that we need to move to come up with new ways of, of inclusion for people to be involved. And uh, I have no idea about remedies per se, but we need to, to come up, come forward with an open mind and, and for some people to recognize that they have had privilege and it's not their specific guilt or responsibility to fix it. But, you know, for us to come forward and go, how can we collectively work together and include people in, in neighborhoods and in government agencies and, and try to make our, our cities more equitable places to live? And, and I think that's a fundamental part now of how the city is trying to proceed with its environmental sustainability efforts. See, we won't forget. 
of the things I really respect about your book, amongst the many other, is that you don't sort of like ghettoize eviction as like a black problem. You know, you while you do address, you know, racial uh, disparity, clearly, you also spend time in a trailer park, which I think was either all white or all, nearly all white. I guess it was one couple that had a black child who was in the home. Uh from a previous yeah. relationship, but that, you know, you spend time among white people and I appreciate you doing that. And the reason why so many things in our world uh, are thought of as a black problem, but they're actually a problem that a lot of Americans are sharing. Examples include food stamps or what we used to call food stamps, but what is now SNAP program. They, we think it's a right. black program, but it's a more white people are on it. Even officer involved shootings happen more to white people. That's because there are more white people. And of course, blacks are disproportionately um, involved in officer involved shootings. But the raw numbers are clearly there are more white people. But in in the area of being unstably housed, while African-Americans may uh, bear a tougher uh, burden in many, in many, many ways, it's not as if white families are immune from being unstably housed. Could you talk a little bit about white poverty and housing? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that was an important part of this work to try to capture just how broad housing instability is. And you're right. It's not just a problem that's focused on low-income communities of color. It's in white communities. It's in immigrant communities. It's also not just a problem in San Francisco and New York City, right? It's yeah. in Minneapolis and Milwaukee and Houston and all over the country. Today, one in five of all renters in America spends at least half of their income on housing. It's a 20%. widespread problem. And I think that capturing, you know, the stories of folks in this majority white trailer park was really illuminating to me. You know, there's a lot of similarities between their stories and the stories of folks in the inner city community, right. the majority of black neighborhoods in Milwaukee, uh, with respect to people struggling to find housing. It's also important to recognize that things like housing discrimination against um, uh, people of color is, is still very much alive and well. And, and, you know, these are there are moments documented in the book, and there are tons of studies that document the saliency of racial discrimination today, too. And that, you know, the folks in the trailer park, they didn't experience that, you know, and they were able to find housing quicker in most cases than the folks uh, from inner city Milwaukee. And I think that's that's an important point the book makes as well. Would you mind talking a little bit about life living in the trailer park? It really was somewhat amazing to me that, you know, the owner, uh, despite the place being run down and having a whole lot of problems that he had been cited for, still managed to make a whole lot of money out of that trailer park. That was surprising to me, too. You know, and one of the questions that I wonder when I went into this is, you know, why, if you could buy property in a lot of places in the city, why why would you buy a trailer park or you know, why would you buy property right in the heart of the inner city? And when I left this work, I, I thought, gosh, why wouldn't you? You know, there there is money to be made. And by my estimate anyways, you know, the owner of that trailer park, which was 131 trailers, um, uh, was was bringing home about $400,000 after expenses, you know. And, and I calculated expenses, including non-payment of rent, eviction expenses, mortgage, property taxes, and um and that means he was he was a lifetime away 
in terms of income from from most of his tenants. You know, uh, well, making four, you know four hundred thousand dollars. Four hundred thousand dollars a year is a lot of money. Well, it it is a lot of money, and it's especially a lot of money relative to what his tenants were making. Um, I think you know the story. The story's complicated, right? I mean, a lot of the the folks in the trailer park respected him, looked up to him. A lot of them um, had more negative views toward him. But the fact of the matter was that landlording in poor neighborhoods can be not often, you know, not always, but it can be a lucrative business. And I think that that's an important point for people like us that really care about poverty, because a lot of times when we talk about poverty, we usually talk about it as um, as like a lack to use the barrel satter, the historian's phrase, you know, like the inner city lacks good jobs or good schools. And, you know, that, that often is true. But I think we also need to focus on the fact that poverty isn't just um, a state of low incomes. It's also caused by extractive markets, or, or maybe we should use the word exploitation. And, and um, I think looking at poverty in that way, for me anyway, it really changes how you understand the sources of it and how we think about getting out of it. You also made the point that um, even though inner city housing that, that has more people of color living there, uh, even though the housing quality is often cited for quality problems and even safety issues, you would guess in a whole, you know, you know, a, a free market, you know, demand supply kind of way that the prices would be particularly low. But you point out in the book that they're not particularly low. Actually, they're sort of high and that segregation, racial segregation actually helps to protect uh the uh, or actually helps to maintain those the the exorbitant amount of expense associated with living in that kind of housing. Yeah, yeah. I had to say congressman this is a deep read of the book. We are in it. We are we are in some tactical stuff right here. That's now, when I told you that I read it, I was not kidding. <laughs> you read it. <laughs> um no, you're absolutely right, you know, and so rent for a two-bedroom apartment in the poorest neighborhood of Milwaukee is only about 50 bucks less than the citywide median. And so, you know, what you have from a landlord's perspective is the opportunity to buy property pretty cheap, you know, in, in low-income distressed communities. You know, you can buy a duplex, the time of my field work anyways, for 8000 bucks, 10000 bucks. And you could rent that out and you could recoup your cost in, a, in about a year's time and then it just cashes out. Mm-hmm. So the thing that makes home ownership in those communities potentially risky investment, um, low property values, makes being a landlord in those communities a potentially lucrative one because you can rent almost at the same rate as you can in uh, much more affluent neighborhoods, uh, but your costs are much lower. Uh, you don't expect appreciation. Like one landlord that I talked to said, you know, you're not in it for the future. You're in it for the now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're about milking those properties for, for all you, you can. And you also did a little bit of a history economics lesson, too. I mean, I mean, one of the things I thought found very interesting is that I think a lot of people assume that, you know, you get low income people coming into a neighborhood that neighborhood, uh, you know, the new residents don't have as much money as the old residents. Therefore, they don't keep up the property. Therefore, the property runs down. Therefore, uh, you end up with a slum. But you gave an explanation that was kind of the other way around, that people came into a segregated area, that they didn't have to keep up the property because the residents that they were 
renting to didn't have other options around the city because of segregation. Uh, is that something you might want to address a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's key, you know. So when we see the northern migration of African Americans that are trying to escape the racial violence of the South and come to Minneapolis and Chicago and Milwaukee and the northern cities, they're segregated, right? They're ghettoized into certain areas of the city. And that, that ghetto is a really incredibly resilient institution in the American city that was enforced first by law and then uh, then by custom after legal segregation fell and, and also just ongoing forms of racial discrimination in the housing market. And so, you know, if you were a landlord uh, that was owning property in the ghetto and you had families that literally couldn't leave it, you know, um, you had no incentive to fix up your property. Uh, what you had an incentive to do was to allow those properties to deteriorate and try to um, try to extract as much profit as you could. And so we see historical evidence in books like The Origins of the Urban Crisis by Tom Segru or Family Properties by Satter um, or The Making of the Second Ghetto by Hirsch. You know, all these kind of great urban historians saying that, you know, rents in black communities were actually higher uh, than rents in white communities up into the 60s, up into the 60s. And um, and the housing conditions were much worse. And these housing conditions had real human costs. You know, they, babies died in fires. You know, babies died from tuberculosis. Families had to wear their winter coats inside, you know, in January and February because they're living without heat, without hot water. And so I think you're right. You know, it's not that local families created slums. It's like slums were created because they were profitable. Money made slums because slums made money. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell Congress to make room for affordable housing. Make Room, a national campaign given a voice to renters and aiming to end the national rental housing crisis, wants to send one million messages to Congress before November 8th to demand attention, action, and resources to end the affordable housing crisis in America. Organizations and individuals can join the campaign by visiting makeroomusa.org to sign the national sign-on letter to Congress, download their Take Action Toolkit, and read stories about renters across the country. After signing on, you can spread the word via social media using the hashtag MakeRoom. Make fighting for affordable housing a part of your theory of change by getting involved with organizations like the National Low-Income Housing Coalition at 
nlihc.org, and the primary organization behind the Make Room campaign, Enterprise, at enterprisecommunity.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. Leading up to this election, we want to give you the resources, knowledge, and inspiration to get involved and stay involved beyond November, because no matter who wins the presidency, as progressives, we always need to be prepared to fight for what's right. That's what keeps bending that arc of the moral universe towards justice. So if getting Congress to put affordable housing issues front and center is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling Congress to hashtag make room for affordable housing via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. This is a moral imperative. Nobody, especially families with small kids, should have to choose between food and rent. No one should have to live in housing that is harmful to their physical and mental health. No one should have to live in communities that are dangerous. I've talked with people in Minneapolis and all over the country, people who have struggled with homelessness, and they all tell me the same thing. You can't find a job if you're living on the street. You can't get clean if you're living on the street. You can't get calm if you're living on the street. If you're on the street, Everything, everything is hard. But even if you're in housing where you pay so much more than you can afford to for the rent, things are tough too. You're constantly trying to juggle one bill or another just to pay the rent. Sometimes you got to choose between light and the rent, heat and the rent. You got to choose between paying one bill or another, a cell phone, or as opposed to rent. It's tough. And so we got to do something about it. We spend hundreds of billions a year on housing in this nation. However, mostly we invest in housing for families earning six figures a year. That's right. We invest our biggest housing dollar in people who don't need money for housing. And yet, that means the people who need real help with housing go without. I believe there's a better housing choice. We can ensure every working family Every low-income veteran, senior, or person with a disability has a safe, affordable place to live. My solution is something called the Common Sense Investment in Housing Act. That's a bill that reforms the mortgage interest deduction program. But there's also other ideas as well. Matthew Desmond talked about universal Section 8 voucher. That's a good idea. There are a lot of good ideas. What we're missing, in my opinion, is will. We need to get the national will to address this housing crisis and invest in housing for people who really need it so that they can have a better shot and a better life and climb this ladder of opportunity in this America of ours.
We just heard clips today from Brave New Films highlighting homeless hate laws. The David Pakman Show pointed out that giving free homes to homeless people can actually save money for a city. Infinite Earth Radio discussed the massive Baltimore ecosystem study and the history of race and decisions about urban land use. Counterspin tackled the issue of environmental racism and the EPA's inability or unwillingness to face the problem head-on. On We the Podcast, Representative Keith Ellison spoke with Matthew Desmond, author of Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. The Laura Flanders Show had a discussion about how residents can help guide the development of their own cities. Our activism for today is in support of the Make Room campaign, calling for one million messages to be sent to Congress demanding action on affordable housing. And finally, we just heard Keith Ellison's summation of the problem of ensuring safe, affordable housing for all. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Chris from Southern Illinois. I was calling about um, Aaron Franklin. just want to respond to his uh, comments. Uh, I agree that you really shouldn't use fear tactics, although the Republicans like to do so. But I think this is a good opportunity for people to look into the Green Party. I, I, did, I did the same thing because where I grew up in the Northeast, Hillary was, would basically be, in the old days, a Republican. She would be a um, moderate Republican. So not my favorite candidate either, but I do think there is some truth to making sure Donald Trump doesn't get into the White House. But I would also love to see Trump just get squashed <laughs> without mercy. It would be something poetic about that. But just thought I'd let you know, stay awesome. Good luck on your ride. Thanks for the show. I love it. Hi, Jay. This is um, Emma from NYC. Sorry, I haven't called in recently. Uh, I actually had surgery, um, which is why my voice is still a bit hoarse. But I completely agree with you. I'm sick. I've heard every argument under the sun about why to vote for both Hillary Clinton or Jill Stein. Let's just move on and talk about what we're going to do after the election. Um, and I think there are three big issues that people should keep on their radar. First one is health care with ADNA withdrawing from the Affordable Care Act uh, markets and a whole bunch of different states and counties. There's going to be a lot of scrutiny on the Affordable Care Act. And with Hillary Clinton likely to be president, um, that means that uh, she'll probably apply a neoliberal approach, which means that we could see a move away from universal health care rather than towards it. So we need to be ready for that and ready to fight for universal health care. The other big issues that are coming up is uh, with these pipelines, the opposition to the pipelines that we've seen recently. Um, that's going to be another big issue. We need to be able to support the direct actions, which is actually a very expensive proposition of 
anyone who's ever been involved with these expenses to bail people out of jail all the time and deal with all the legal consequences. And lastly, we need to be ready for uh, a split Congress, which is a big possibility that the uh, Republicans will control one house and the Democrats will control another. We can't count on federal legislation to be able to get passed through. Um, so we need to really up our game in the state and local arenas. And yeah, that's what I have to think about that. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, we are at the official end of our summer fundraiser. I, I, I ran the fundraiser for two months it was a great success. Thank everyone who got involved in one way or the other. We did a two-for-one this time. I raised a bunch of money. You know, my brother and I are doing climate rides, so the two of us together raised a whole bunch of money for climate change and sustainability organizations, and we're about to go on that ride from Acadia, Maine, down to Boston in just about a week. So, very exciting. That's coming up. I'm a little nervous because I'm not quite uh, in as good a shape as I hoped to be by this time. But the other part of the fundraiser was for just, you know, people who wanted to support this show at the same time, uh, sign up as a member. And uh, during the fundraiser, we gave away free t-shirts and hoodies to people as a thank you gift. So that, that's what's been going on this summer. If you didn't uh, know already, you probably heard me talk about it. But now that we are at this point, we're at the end, it's making me reflect on this summer and and I think I should just tell you the story of what happened this summer because it's it's such a great example in really, really concrete terms, really human solid terms, what it means for you to support a show like this. Well, like what was actually done with the money given to this show this year? And uh, so the the story sort of ends. Uh, with the recent news, I, I mentioned on the show that there was a death hanging over the family, and that death came to pass, as, as everyone expected. Um, that was Amanda's 95-year-old grandmother who, who passed recently. It, you know, she was diagnosed with cancer and a few months later uh, fell and broke her hip. We've heard that story before. It, it, that is, uh, for some reason, all <laughs> seems seems so often to be the beginning of the end. Uh, it, it was in this case as well. And so no one should be surprised at how that story ended. But there's a lot more to it, obviously. And, and the story really starts way back in February. The, the story of this summer starts way back last winter. That was when I asked Amanda to step up and take the role of the communications director spot for the show. Uh, Katie Klebusik had been doing that job for a couple of years she decided to move on, and Amanda actually is a communications director. That's her job in real life, you know, that she had a, a nine-to-five office job where that's what she did, and she was just sitting there. I was like, boy, 
would you like to do some moonlighting? <laughs> I could, you know, you do exactly the thing that I need help with. And, you know, and you're right here. You want to give that a shot. And so, so that started in February. And in March was when we got the diagnosis of cancer for Amanda's grandmother. So she was still doing her regular nine to five and she was moonlighting for the show. But that, that was the, the beginning that gave us the spark of the idea that possibly if we could, you know, work hard enough, push hard enough, get enough donations, you know, get things going, you know, don't get me wrong. No one's getting rich off this show and, uh, and, and I don't have enough money to have like a full-time staff or anything, but about like maybe like one and a half people can live off of uh, the income that this show makes. And so that idea was that maybe Amanda could step away from her regular job and, uh, you know, and, and fill in the gaps with some more freelancing, that sort of thing. You know, the, the, the classic millennial take on, uh, on the workforce, you know, I'll, I'll just do it on my own and, and figure it out, figure it out along the way. And what ended up happening was the very same day that she quit her job was the day we got the call that her grandmother had fallen and broken her hip. And so in an incredibly real and literal way, the people who support this show allowed the both of us, but you know, primarily Amanda to go and be with her grandmother immediately. You know, she, she didn't have to ask for time off. She didn't have to, you know, arrange a schedule. We just got in the car and went and we were able to be down there uh, to help her through her, you know, first her hospital recovery and then in the recovery center, uh, you know, after surgery for her hip. And that's the sort of thing that most people just don't have the opportunity to do. They, they just don't have the opportunity to, to drop everything for, you know, weeks at a time and, and drive 800 miles to be with someone when they are in need. And so, so we, you know, we were able to do that. And then similarly, uh, you know, she, her grandmother kind of recovered pretty well from, uh, you know, from, from the, the hip break. And then, you know, a little bit of time went by and we, and we got the word that things had taken a turn for the worse and she wasn't getting out of bed anymore. And again, we were able to go. And so we were down there for two solid weeks and that was incredibly, you know, I don't even have the words like, like thankful, honored, grateful, like the fact that you through a series of hard work and effort and risk taking and luck and, uh, you know, support of other people and, you know, our network, just everything came together and allowed us to be there for a person who Amanda was incredibly close with her entire life. And we were able to be there when we were most needed and through no fault of anyone else's, it just so happened that no one else in the family was able to do that to the same degree. And so I just thought today that instead of thanking people for donating to the climate ride and thanking people for becoming members, as I always do, I just wanted to tell you that that is what happened this summer. And that is entirely because of people who support the show. 
and and it just it could not have gone another way if if we didn't have that support. So we take this show incredibly seriously, and we want to do the best job we possibly can because we want people to feel like we are worthy of being supported because uh, through our own experience, it is incredibly important to us to have that support. And, and, and I just couldn't think of any better way or, or, or more, you know, heartfelt way to thank the people who support the show than just by telling you what that support has actually meant to us in a, a very concrete way at a very critical time in our lives. So that is going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in, 202-999-3991, and hopefully you have a somewhat better sense uh, of the sincerity behind the words. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how this program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing See you